You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. Uh, Welcome to church this morning. Uh, We are one church in multiple locations, and so we are worshiping with our brothers and sisters who are downtown and those uh, who are joining us online. And so I just wanna welcome all of New Life to church this morning. In fact, if you're sitting here at the North Campus, can you just give a round of applause for our downtown community, our online community? We are so glad that you guys joined us this morning. We are in a series right now uh, titled Heroes of the Faith. And we've been looking at men and women uh, who have done extraordinary things for God. And they haven't always known what the outcome will be, but they've had to put their trust and their faith in God so that he would pull them through. In fact, Rodney's been giving us this definition of faith, and it goes like this. Faith is believing that God is in control and that he's worth following regardless of where he will take you. It's you believing that he's in control even though you don't know where that control of his might lead you in your life. And so the motto that we've been carrying through all these sermons that we're going to continue to carry through is that no matter what's happening in your life, God cares as much about the process as he does the results. He cares about what's going on in your life right now. And so we've been looking at people, sort of the the mothers and the fathers of the church that have set the stones that we now walk on of the faith that we believe in. We started with Abraham and we watched how this man will leave his homeland and he's going to go to a place that is not his own. And in fact, when you follow his story, there's, it's, it's incredible highs and incredible lows. He has great successes. He has great failures. But the one we focused in on was in Genesis, where he offers his son Isaac as a sacrifice because that's what God required. And in this bizarre story where, where no rational parent would do this and respond to God in the way that Abraham did, Abraham listens to the Lord and he lifts the knife because in that moment, God called into something bigger and he put all the control in God's hands knowing that God was gonna do something. And God withholds the sacrifice. He gives him a ram and he kills it instead. We looked at the man Joshua and how he took an entire nation and he marched around a city for six days Every day they got up and they marched around the city. The seventh day they get up and they march around it several times. They blow the trumpets, the city walls come down. They don't know what the results are gonna be, but God gave them a promise. He said, I'm gonna give you this land. I'm gonna give you this victory. What I need you to do is I need you to trust me. I need you to take my word. I need you to take my command. I need you to put it in your life and I need you to execute it. And you don't know what it's going to look like. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be ashamed, looking like a fool, marching around a city. But I'm going to pull through. And God gives them the victory. And last week, we went to the ultimate underdog story of David and Goliath, right? How many of you here were last week for David and Goliath? Isn't that story just like one of the best ever? And we see how this man, who he gets one description in the Bible, right? He's ready. He has beautiful eyes and he's handsome. How many of you guys want that description for you, right? This beautiful-eyed young boy, this this teenager, is going to go onto the field of battle where no one else will go. He's angered by the giant Goliath who's mocking God, and he goes out there. He hits him in the head with a stone, takes out a sword, finishes the job. These great acts of faith that are inspired by the word of God 
And what we're seeing is people entrusting themselves to God over and over and over again, and God does great things in their life. And so this morning, what we're gonna do is continue that story. We're gonna continue the man, David, and we're gonna show what happens after uh, the battle with Goliath, after there's some drama in his life where he's running away from King Saul because he's jealous of this beautiful-eyed, handsome young man, right, who seems to be gaining influence in his kingdom. We're gonna look at what happens when David actually becomes king. And we're gonna see what it looks like in David's life to have a great faith even in the midst of his own failures. We're gonna look at the story of David and Bathsheba. And so one thing before we turn to the text, if you have a a young child in the service, there's gonna be some things said that are gonna be a little bit more graphic. It's not gonna be anything too crazy, okay? We're not doing like the sex talk today or anything like that. No birds and bees, okay? But there are just certain parts of David's stories that's a little bit traumatic. And so if you feel it's appropriate, take your children out. You can sit outside or you can send them over to children's ministry. They're gonna have a great time with Tina. But I would encourage you, if that's you, do that now. Open your Bibles, 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5. How do we have faith in the midst of failure? Our scripture reading today starts this way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. He did his research, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Last week we had looked at the life of David and how he conquered Goliath. He conquered the one nobody else could conquer, but this week what we're gonna see is that there was a Goliath lurking in the shadows of David's life, one that wasn't fought on a battlefield with swords and spears, but there was a Goliath in his heart that he's going to fail, that he can't conquer on his own. So the first point I wanna give to you today is that sin always wants more. Sin always wants more. It's never satisfied. We look at the story of David and Bathsheba in those first five verses, and what we see is David is doing something he should not be doing. David is sitting in his palace, he's sitting, in his, he's sitting on his throne while his armies are away at war. Now, I don't know if this is like the, the Old Testament version of like the NFL where it's like, hey, now, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, getting to August, September, it's time to go to war, right? Tis the season, tis the season to get your swords out and go fight. I don't know how that all worked, but apparently there was a season where the kings would lead their armies and they would go battle on behalf of their nation. They would go and fight for their protection. They would go and fight for their honor. They would go and fight for their dignity. They would would fight warring armies that wanted to come and take their land. And David usually would go out with them. He would go out there to protect the people of God, to lead the people of God. But this time, this year, he didn't. 
He was supposed to, but he didn't. He, he hung back and he stayed in the palace and he let all of his soldiers, he let his general Joab go out and do all the fighting for him. David had a responsibility that he surrendered for this time and while he was sitting back in his palace doing nothing, instead of fighting, he's sitting on his couch playing his Xbox. He's sitting on his phone playing a little game. Wasting time as his men are out fighting, as they're out being responsible, securing their protection, King David is at home doing nothing. And it's in his nothingness he watches, he walks out onto the porch and he sees this beautiful woman, Auga, right? Like David goes out and he's infatuated with this person and he, and, and he inquires about her. He does a little research and he finds out this is Bathsheba. And he takes her for himself. He invites her to his home and he lays with her. He knows her intimately to the point where they have a baby. Watch, this is what happens with David's life. David is not acting as the man God has called him to be. And because he surrendered that action, it led to his heart seeing a woman and being overtaken by lust. And that one sin of lust drove him to call on her. And now she comes to his home and he sleeps with her. So now his sin has multiplied, and now it's sitting in the heart of Bathsheba as well. But the story goes on, and we see at the end of verse 5 that Bathsheba comes back, and she says, David, I woke up this morning, and I'm sick again. I'm puking all over the floor, and this is like the fifth day in a row. I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I think there's a baby in me. And then Moiri comes out from around the back room and he has, his, he has his pamphlet, right? He has this little envelope, this manila envelope, and he's like, you're the father, right? He, he proclaims it to David. The DNA tests are in. You're the father, David. So now, Dave, thank you for the, the 10 Mori fans that are out here. I know there's like 100, but you just don't want to laugh because you, laugh because you feel like it would be sinful or something, okay? And I don't know what he was doing in David's palace at that time. I don't even think he was alive, but... Um, but David, his sin is starting to pass on. Now he's got a child that he's got to take care of and think about. And then what happens next, we don't have time to read the whole story. But he starts to conceive and he starts to prepare this plan of how he's going to cover up his sin. He calls Uriah, her husband, who's a man who's fighting like David should be fighting. He calls him back from the battlefield so that maybe he would come back and he would go home and he would have the relationship with his wife so he could cover it up and say, no, this is Uriah's baby the whole time, can't you see? Then he'd be out of it, he'd wash his hands of that. But Uriah is such a godly man, he comes back to David's courts and he refuses to go home. He sleeps on the palace steps this guy is so loyal to his battle buddies. He's so loyal to the soldiers that are still fighting in the field while he's at home. He says, I refuse to go home to my wife. And when that doesn't work, David conceives of another plan to cover up his sin. And he says, Uriah, I want you to come into my court. I want you to come into my dining room and we're going to feast together. And so he brings him in, he, he fattens him up, he gives him the wine, he gives him the drink, he gets him hammered beyond belief and says, Uriah, go to your home and sleep with your wife. And again, Uriah refuses. He ends up sleeping on the couch because he can't go and do the things that those other soldiers can't do. 
Uriah is radically faithful to the men that he serves with while David is here at home shirking his responsibilities, trying to cover up the sins that he's committed. Your sin is never satisfied with you. The story only gets worse. Uriah refuses, and so David has to come up with another plan. And you know the story. What happens next? His plan gets deeper. The sin gets worse. He writes a letter to Joab, his general. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to take Uriah, and I want you to put him at the front of the battle where the, the, the fighting is the heaviest. And I want you to take all of his battle buddies, those men who, who swore an oath to serve faithfully alongside one of another, I want, you, I want you to pull them back and leave Uriah out there alone to die. He writes this in a letter. Watch what he does. Look how sick the intent of this man's heart is. He writes this in a letter. He seals it with his royal stamp and he walks to Uriah. He puts it in Uriah's hand and says, Uriah, deliver your death sentence to Joab. Uriah's gonna carry his death sentence to the general of David. And Uriah, the faithful soldier, Uriah, the faithful man who refused, who refused even his own wife because his responsibility was on the battlefield, he's gonna take his own death sentence, give it to Joab. And watch what, this is, this is, this is the saddest thing. So Joab takes Uriah, he sends him to attack the town with a group of soldiers where the fighting is the heaviest. They get too close to the city walls and, and they get shot with bows and arrows and Uriah dies. But you know what else happens? There's a group of men that die with him. So instead of Uriah being the one who, who dies alone, now all of a sudden there's, there's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten other men, ten other fathers, ten sons who've lived lives and, and, and swore the oath to serve under King David. Now those men have, have, are, are the victims of David's sin as well. David's gonna kill Uriah, but he's gonna cause other men who faithfully served him to die as well. Your sin is never satisfied with just you. David's sin is not satisfied with him. He's gonna deliver the death sentence in Uriah's hand. David's sin affected Bathsheba. It's going to affect the child that will come after him because that child will die because of his sin. It affects Uriah. It affects the other soldiers that are killed. And here's the tragedy. David goes on living life as though nothing happened. He tells Joab, this is sorrowful news, but go and take the city and be satisfied in that. Be satisfied in overcoming. Follow my command and go take the city. So they take the city and there's a celebration. And David lives as though nothing had happened. He had covered his tracks. His sins had been paid for. He was now justified. There was no stain that was attributed to him in his mind. But then comes along the prophet Nathan. Prophets were the people that you don't want to have over at dinner because you never know what they're going to say. The prophet was the person who had the ear of the king no matter what. He could freely come into the king's court and say whatever he wanted. Nobody else in the kingdom could do it except for the prophet. And the prophet Nathan comes into David's court. And he says, David, there's a situation at hand that you need to deal with. 
And he tells them, he, tell, he shares this allegory with them that David thinks is a real story. He says, David, there's, there's two men in your kingdom. One is wealthy, one is rich, one is poor. The wealthy man has, he has herds and he has money and he has a home uh, and he's got a family that he's taking care of and, and he's got flocks of sheep and, and he, he's just, he's very wealthy. He's done very good for himself. But then there's this poor man over here where he doesn't have anything. He has a wife, he has kids, but he has a hard time providing for them. And the only thing he has is one little lamb. And the story I've heard is that this rich man uh, encountered a traveler and invited him into his home and he wanted to show off his wealth and he wanted to show off his majesty and his might. And so what he did is, is instead of sacrificing one of his own animals and butchering it and giving it uh, for the traveler, he goes and he steals the small lamb from the poor man. And he brings that lamb back and he kills it. And he feeds it to the travelers. He takes another man's possession. He takes another man's glory and he uses it for his own. And I love and hate David's response. 2 Samuel 12, verse 5 through 6. As Nathan brings this allegory to a close, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David is furious and he condemns the rich man to death. He says this man should die for the crime that he's committed against the poor man. David's heart cries out for justice. The man who stole another man's wife, the man who took a death sentence and put it in the man he was going to kill's hands. The man who sent him to the battlefield and caused other men to die alongside of him. This man cries out for justice. And here's what Nathan says in verse seven. Nathan looks at David and he says, you are the man. David, you are the man. You're the rich man who stole the lamb from the poor man. You're the one who took another man's wife for your own glory. I gave, God gave you everything. He gave you wealth. He gave you authority. He protected you from Saul. He did all these things for you. And here you are stealing another man's wife and your sin is compounding and you've killed him. David, you are the man. See, the question I want to ask this morning is what does this look like in our life? What does it look like when sin wants more in our life and it's never satisfied with just you because it's the monster that'll never be satisfied. This is the one giant that David could never kill. This Goliath is gonna conquer him. What does it look like in our life? The Institute for Family Studies says that 20% of men have cheated on their wives. It also says that 13% of women have cheated on their spouse. Why do people cheat? Men, oftentimes the reason is they get bored with long-term relationships. Men see their wives as more maternal, especially after they have children. They see them as that mother figure rather than this, this being that is meant to be desired and longed for. So instead of trying to woo her, they transition to a posture of more trying to just support her, which is of course necessary. 
They do it honestly, and this is what the, the, the research showed, is that oftentimes when men cheat on their wives, they do it just to prove that they can do it. Just to prove that they still got the stuff. It, it looks like a man who's in his midlife crisis thinking, do I still got my game like I had back in high school? And that's why they cheat on their spouse. It's very ego-driven. Women, when they cheat on their spouse, it's oftentimes not due to a physical sexual desire. It's due to an emotional satisfaction that's going unmet at home. They, have a, they can have a purely emotional affair without it ever becoming physical, but oftentimes it does. 20% of men, 13% of women are gonna commit the sin that led to the disaster in David's life. So what does it look like in our life? It looks like a grown man sitting in the living room, sending chat, Snapchats, hopping on Tinder and flirting with women while his wife is in the kitchen and while his children are playing in his room. It looks like long nights at the office talking with the secretary and building a relationship with someone that maybe right now is not crossing the line, but you know what it's leading to. You know how you're disappointed in your relationship at home, and so you have this option available for when you need it. It looks like a couple going through a midlife crisis because their kids are getting older and maybe moving out of the house, and they're trying to find themselves again post-children. It looks like being an emotionally prepubescent child stuck in an adult's body who can't work through your problems with your spouse, and so you become disinterested and disengaged in the relationship, and instead of loving and cherishing your wife or learning to respect and honor your husband, you think it's a better idea to find your thrills elsewhere. Here's the word of God this morning. It is you. It is you. You are the man. You are the woman. You are the one who's following the path of sin. And maybe right now it's something as simple as looking at pornography and saying, you know what, my wife's not good enough. Or maybe it's reading that romance novel because maybe your husband isn't good enough to fulfill you emotionally. And that's the start of your, your progress. Where's it gonna lead? Where's it gonna end? You and I, I am the man. You are the man. You are the woman. Some of us need to take our smartphones and we need to throw them against the wall because they're leading to infidelity in our marriages. Some of you need to go onto your phone and you need to hold that app button for more than three seconds and then you need to delete it and you need to go to your spouse and repent of your sin. Nathan comes to David. This is a public occasion. It's not like he pulls David aside and says, David, let me talk to you privately for a second. He pulls he goes to David in the middle of the court and he says, David, you're the man. He confronts his sin. What is the sin in your life that will never be satisfied, that will only get deeper, that will only get more dangerous, that will destroy? Sin is never satisfied with you. It wants your marriage. And here's the kicker. It wants your children too. Sin multiplies in the family. I've already... How many of you think David's story right now is pretty bad? It only gets worse. Nathan will look at David and say, the sword will never lead your home. In fact, someone from inside your own family is going to try to kill you. Here's David's story following Bathsheba. 
his son Amnon, his firstborn, is going to rape his daughter Tamar. And Absalom, Tamar's brother, David's son, right, it doesn't think that David does enough to, to avenge the, the, the rape of his sister, and so he goes and he kills his brother. He kills David's firstborn son. But Absalom's not done there. He, he, he goes and he tries to take David's place as king. He encourages people, come to me. Don't go to David. Come to me for judgments. And he leads a coup and he actually pushes David outside of Jerusalem. He takes it over, sets himself up as king, and David has to reinvade Jerusalem, which leads to the death of his other son. David's sin directly impacted his entire legacy. His entire family is affected by his sin. How has your sin affected your family? If I'm that man, if you're that man, if you're that woman, how is your sin affecting your family? Here's what sin seeks to do. It seeks to justify itself. It makes excuses for itself. Rather than dealing with the consequences, it says, here's my life. Here's what's going on inside of my life. And if you understood my position, then maybe it would make sense as to why I did the things that I did. My wife, she's just not the same person she used to be. And if you were in the room and we were fighting, then maybe you would understand that I'm not as attracted to her as I used to be. I've fallen out of love with her, and I need to rekindle that, that fire and that love again. You're nothing more than a little boy who can't learn to love another person. I've fallen out of love with my husband because all he does is come home and sit on the couch, and I ask him to do things, and I ask him to support me, and I feel like he's never there. I feel like he's off in a, in a fantasy world living in, in ways that I don't even understand, but he's never here for me. We make excuses as to why we do the things that we do. Here's the heart of this story. This is why this story is so important. This is what it looks like to have great faith in the midst of failure. Sin seeks to justify, but notice what David does not do. Nathan's gonna confront his sin, and this is what David says. He says one line, I have sinned against God. That's it. I have sinned against God. David does not shift the blame to Bathsheba that I've seen in all of scripture. He's gonna write a psalm, the 51st psalm. Write that down in, in your notes. Read through the 51st Psalm. It's all about his, his petition before God. He's repenting before God. He's calling on God to save him and to set him free. You know what he never does? He never once goes to God and says, God, Bathsheba was out on the porch naked. I could hardly control myself. She was out there. My other wives, like, they're starting to have kids and they're not as fun anymore and it's not as exciting. But Bathsheba, she's down there. I saw her beauty and it was so hard to fight, I had to give in. He never once uses her as a crutch. He never once blames her for his own sin. David steps up like a man and says, God, I have failed. I have sinned against you. He never once shifts the blame. What does it look like to have great faith in the midst of failure? My last point is this. Grace is the thing that sets you free. Sin will devour you, but grace is the thing that will set you free. Remember David's pronouncement of guilt on the rich man. What did he say? That man deserves to die. 
That man needs to repay his sins four times. Can I tell you something? His judgment was correct. David was right. That man should have been sentenced to death. That man should have had to repay the lamb fourfold. But the reality of David's situation is David's the rich man. He pronounces judgment on himself. He knew he deserved to die. He knew his sin is going to destroy his family for years to come. He knows he's gonna have to live with the consequences of his decision. He knows when Absalom is trying to kill him that he doesn't get to just go back and say, why does my son hate me? He knows why his son hates him. It's because of his sin with Bathsheba. But watch how David responds to God when he's called out for his sins. Psalm 51, verses one through four, he says this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's words are these, God have mercy on me. David needed God to perform an action inside of him. And so what I wanna do is read to you all the actions that David is calling upon God to do in his heart in Psalm 51. He says this, God have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, wash me, cleanse me, teach me, purge me, wash me, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquity, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit in me, deliver me, open my lips to praise you. If you wanna have great faith in the midst of your failure, what you have to learn to do is die to yourself so that you can become alive to God. David received mercy from God. How does he do this? How does God provide mercy where he's just but also loving kindness? where he's good in his judgment. How does God do this for David? David has to wonder, how in the world is God gonna provide something to pay for the sins because I should be the one paying for them? What God will do is down the line from his lineage, from Bathsheba, the one he sinned with, she's gonna have a child named Solomon and that Solomon's gonna have a child and another child and another child. And it's gonna come to a place where through that legacy, Jesus will come. David needs, here's what David needs. He needs a better Uriah. David needed a better Uriah. He needed somebody who could go out to the battlefield of his soul and win a victory for him there. David couldn't conquer this giant himself. He couldn't conquer the giant of his heart. And so he needed somebody to do it for him. And when we see Jesus come on the scene, he's the better Uriah. He comes and he's faithful to the kingdom of God. He's faithful to the promises and he preaches messages in order to get our attention, in order to wake us up, in order to show us the things in our life that we're hiding from him. And what we do to him is we take, we take his death sentence, right? We take the cross, the thing that he would die on, and we put it in his hands. We hang it over his shoulders, and we force him to march to the battlefield of our soul. 
the place where our sin destroys us. Jesus goes there with our death sentence. He puts the cross there and he hangs on a tree so that our shame, our guilt, our sin, the sin of David, something as serious as murder, as adultery, as infidelity, it's put on his shoulders. He bears those burdens and there he dies. He dies the death you and I should have died. He dies the death that David should have died. And David has nothing to give God other than his praise. Watch how David finishes the 51st Psalm. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, this is what you require. David never comes to God and says, look how good I am. Look at my righteous works. Look at my, I just became a member at New Life. Look how good I am. God, I'm figuring this faith thing out. Look how, how righteous I am. David does nothing to justify himself. He has a broken and contrite heart. It's ripped apart. He's a broken man. The only way you and I can have great faith in the midst of failures, because they will come, is if we have a broken heart before God and we realize the sentence that I proclaimed is the sentence I should receive. I deserve death. I'm that man. You're that woman. I deserve that death sentence, but Jesus took it for me. The glory of the gospel is this. He dies to our sin. He rises again three days later, giving us new life. I've seen this play out in couples where there's been infidelity or there's been, uh, the, the trust has been broken in a couple's life where, where the, it's been totally shattered. And usually it results in divorce. But when it doesn't, when Christ is brought to the center of a marriage and he's given glory and he is clung to and he is held on to, you know what happens? I've seen this. It, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen the faith of those two people come alive in ways that you could never predict. The love they have for Jesus is so much stronger because they realize, I'm broke, I'm a broken vessel, but God wants to pour out his spirit in me. And if he wants to pour it out in me, it's gonna pour through the cracks of my life and it's gonna go to other people. And there's this bonding that happens in a marriage when, when infidelity is dealt with, when sins are owned and they're repented and the blame is not shift to the other person. This thing called grace, this gift we don't deserve, it's Jesus hanging on a cross for my sin. This grace comes into our life and all of a sudden things are different because we have a broken and contrite heart. God can do amazing and great things with people who have a broken and contrite heart. Has God broken you yet? Do you have a faith that is so great and so powerful, you can do all the things that David did, yet still come out the other side with a faith that's great? If that's you this morning, come find me after this. Make this your first step. I need to own my sin I'm gonna to talk to a pastor about it. Write it on a connection card if you don't wanna do it today. Say, I wanna meet with a pastor. I wanna rededicate my life to Christ. I wanna jump back in to what this thing of, of great faith is all about, trusting God with control no matter what. These are moments that are the most terrifying because of the moments you're standing on a precipice and you could take that step over, but that step, step will be terrifying. 
It'll be awkward. It'll be uncomfortable. Let it start with a conversation with a pastor where we can walk with you through what it looks like to own the sins that you've committed and walk in a relationship with Christ and a relationship with your spouse that is healthy and honoring to God where you too will come out with a faith that is great. Amen, church? Amen. I think I'm gonna take a nap after this. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing in this church. We thank you that these stories of faith that are incredible and they're powerful, they speak to the very core of who we are. God, you call us to go and you call us to conquer giants like David did. But Jesus, what you identify in our, our heart is a giant that we could never conquer, that only you could. And so Jesus, we invite you to soften our hearts this morning. We invite you as we sing our last song to just open up our souls and do work in us that you would convict us, that you would help us pick up that connection card and write on it that we need prayer, that we need to meet with the pastor, that we need to do something to get my life in order because my life is leading to death, not just for me, but it's leading to death in my family. Jesus, we need you this morning because we are broken vessels. We need your grace. Show us your grace. Show us the cross. Show us the life that you have given to us. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen.